I was captivated this week by the illustration that the prophet uses in today's passage, verses 2 and 3 in particular of chapter 3. Uh, it's a pretty common metaphor that we actually find throughout Scripture that's used pretty much all the way through, but it really struck me this week. We get the picture of this refiner's fire. It refines or purifies precious metals like silver or gold. And I think if you've played Minecraft enough, you probably actually get this fairly well as it is. But when someone discovers these precious metals like silver or gold, it's usually captured within rocks uh, and, and minerals that it's found within. So there's this whole long process that someone has to go through in order to extract those precious metals from those rocks. You got to break the rock away from it, and then you have to put the silver into a really hot fire in a container that's called a crucible. And once that, once that fire melts all of the, the metal, well, then what happens is the impurities, some of the other things that are mixed in with those precious metals, rise to the surface. And once they've risen to the surface, you're able to sort of skim them off the top. All those minerals, those rocks, all that worthless impurity is separated from the precious metal. So you can skim them off the top, you just separate them from the silver. And those impurities are called dross, D-R-O-S-S. And you just keep repeating that process of purifying it until the silver or the gold or whatever is pure. You don't want those impurities in that precious metal because that dross compromises the strength of the silver and gold, and it distracts from the beauty of what that precious metal is meant to convey. And there's another metaphor that's used in this same passage right alongside of that that comes from cloth manufacturing, which I was less familiar with. A person who makes cloth is called a fuller uh, back in the day. They would clean and thicken their cloth after they've woven it together. They'd put it out on rocks, beat it with sticks in order to sort of finalize it, make it fuller. And in addition to that, they would use special soap to clean that cloth. That special soap had lye in it, and so it was very corrosive. But that soap was called Fuller's Soap. It was meant to make the material that they're working with brighter, cleaner. And so by the time they're done with it, after they've used this Fuller's Soap on it, uh, the material is now bright and clean and shiny. Both of those illustrations that the prophet is giving to us are going to be really important for us to understand here this morning in this passage. Uh, recognize that the fire does not consume the silver. It refines the silver. And in the same way, that soap does not destroy the fabric, but it purifies or cleanses it. And so if we're tracking with this metaphor, understanding what it actually means, it symbolizes the people as those precious metals. And the refining, purifying fire, though difficult, helps bring our dross, our sin, to the surface in order for it to be skimmed off and set aside. And in the same way that Fuller's soap cleanses away the dirt of sin and maybe the, the, the sin of apathy and makes that cloth brighter, speaking of our moral character and delight in God. Both of these illustrations of difficult, uncomfortable experiences are used by God to improve the character of his people in particular, whom he's speaking to here through the prophet. Uh, the Apostle Peter picks up on the same principle in the New Testament when he's talking about this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. The Apostle Peter there says, In this you rejoice, 
Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the focus of today's passage, purification and the revelation of Jesus Christ in his first coming and anticipating in his second coming. Well, the structure of the book of Malachi is really built around questions and answers. If you notice that this morning, there are six disputes or dialogues that the prophet interacts with through his people, and each of those interactions has three elements to it. So the prophet speaks to God's people. He gives a statement from God. The prophet then anticipates how Israel might object to that statement, and then he provides a response to their objection. So here's the the dispute from today's section that we see in verse 17, chapter 2. The statement that the prophet brings is that you have wearied the Lord with your words. They then object, how? And then he responds by accusing God of indifference about injustice. That is how you are wearying the Lord with your words. Well, God responds then by saying that he would bring his justice, but you ought to be careful what you ask for because you are involved in that injustice too. And so we see a prophecy here that God would bring his discipline discipline to his people to purify his people before he would bring the full impact of his perfect justice. And so I submit the big idea of this passage is for us God prepares and purifies his people before vindicating his perfect justice. God prepares and purifies his people before vindicating his perfect justice. And we'll break this section down into three uh, portions. First, we'll just focus on that dispute from verse 17 of chapter 2, where they are accusing God of indifference to injustice, which is to attack his character. Second, We see that there are two messengers who usher in God's justice. And three, God's justice begins with his household from those last verses. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word this morning, that we would find great comfort in it. Father, it is a sobering reality to know that we do face trials of various kinds but it is such a great comfort to remember and recall together the truths that we have been singing this morning, that there is no more wrath for us to face because of the perfect, finished, final work of our Savior whom you sent, Jesus Christ. Father, would you help us to take our great confidence and hope in him, to lean into his perfect work, and to be obedient and fear you and worship you alone while we wait for his second coming. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, chapter 217, at the end of this chapter, they are accusing God of indifference to injustice, which is an attack on his character. Let me just read that verse here again. Verse 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? The response by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. 
or by asking, where is the God of justice? And so we know that God does not, in fact, in actuality, grow weary. God does not change. Uh, He is not overcome by suffering, and we'll talk more about that next week in verse 6. But this is still communicating something to us important about God. You might imagine what it would be like to have your reputation continually attacked and to have to continue to defend your own character against those attacks. Over time, you'd be worn out by it. You would be wearied by it. And so by analogy, that describes the situation here with God. They are accusing God of being unjust, attacking his character. This is what we see in the two quotes here. They ask, how have we wearied him? The response, by saying that the Lord delights in those who do evil and calls them good, which is a very brazen accusation to make uh, against God, to say the least. They know full well that God does not delight in those who do evil. They know that. Why would they say such a thing if they know that that's not true? Well, the second statement, which is actually a question, helps clarify what they mean with that first statement. Where is the God of justice? It seems that Israel was waiting for God to come in justice and in judgment to judge those who were around them who were delighting in evil. It seems like they were just getting a free pass. It looks like God doesn't really care. Of course, we know at this particular time, there was an enemy nation, uh, an enemy of God and an enemy of Israel called Edom, who was very much involved in idolatry, uh, was hostile towards God, was hostile to one another, and yet it seemed like they were thriving. And so if they're worshiping false gods, they're characterized by hostility to you and to one another, why are they doing so well? And let's be real. It is troubling for us today in the here and now to see the wicked living in ease. It it doesn't line up with what we are told to expect. Blessings for obedience, judgment on the disobedient. And sometimes if we just trust our eyes, it actually looks like the opposite is true. And so we ask, where is the God of justice? These crooked people are out here prospering and you don't seem to care. Asaph in Psalm 73 expresses a very similar frustration or sentiment. Let's be clear here what's happening. God is not wearied by your genuine concern for justice, for an actual desperate plea for him to return and make all things right. But this is different. What Israel is doing here is accusing God of being indifferent towards injustice, of looking on evil and calling it good, which is an attack on his character. It's just one more way that they're not honoring his name. They say that God delights in evil, whereas they delight in justice. Well, in the passages before this, we know full well that Israel's priests have broken the covenant through their apathetic worship, through their partial instruction. We know that the whole nation of Israel has broken the covenant with God by marrying women who are devoted to foreign gods. They're breaking covenant between themselves by breaking their vows in marriage. And now these people are accusing God of being unjust. It's pretty bold. And so the Lord is described as being wearied by this. These unjust covenant breakers are questioning his unchanging faithfulness 
and steadfast righteousness. And so he responds then that justice will indeed come. And he gives a shadowy glimpse of what that justice will look like. Second, two messengers usher in God's justice. There's two messengers. Let me read chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So it's important to understand this passage right off the bat to recognize that there are, there are two messengers that are mentioned here. And notice it says, first, behold, I... Uh, This is God speaking here through the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger, and this messenger will prepare the way before me. And so we have one messenger whose job is to prepare the way for the Lord. You can think of it almost like a motorcade who is arriving in an intersection before a head of state who's coming, right? He's going to go through, stop the traffic, clear any sort of obstacles so that nothing gets in his way, and everyone takes notice as he comes through. So that's the one messenger. We keep reading. And the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant is coming. So this is a second distinct messenger, it seems. Here's what we understand this verse to mean on this side of the cross. Is point A. Is John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus? This is what we understand this verse, this passage to be teaching us. So John is messenger one. Jesus is messenger too. And take note here as well that Lord, as it's used the first time in verse 1, is not in all capitals like it is at the end of the verse. Did you see this? Capital L, Lord, but not capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. They're distinct. When all of the letters are capitalized, that is the, the translators of our ESV, signifying that the word behind it is Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. But here, whenever it's used with just one capital letter, it means it's a more general term for a a lord or a master or even a king. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah both use this word to describe a king in part of their prophecies. So we might say, the lord or king, ruler, that you're looking for, that that one who's going to bring justice that you're so excited about, who's going to enforce the covenant that one that you take such delight in because you love justice, he's going to come suddenly. And notice at the end, he does use capital L-O-R-D when he uses the title for himself, the Lord of hosts. And again, Lord of hosts is a title that reminds us that he is the God of angelic armies. It is a bit of a foreboding way to describe himself. And if you recall, the, the prophet himself, his name is Malachi, and that means messenger we translate it. And so there might be a sense in which Malachi himself, in the near sense, is the prophet who is coming to prepare the way of the Lord. You know, he's encouraging people to repent, calling them back to covenant faithfulness, to return to those obligations that they have before the Lord. But as we read earlier in the service, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus helps us understand what this passage is truly all about. He helps us understand the greater fulfillment of this prophet's words. Matthew 11, I'll read it again, just verses 9 through 10. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you more than a prophet. This is he, speaking of John the Baptist, 
of whom it is written, and he's quoting Malachi here, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So we understand that the one who would come to prepare the way was John the Baptist. He's a messenger. He's a prophet of God, bringing God's word, who had come some 400 years after the time of Malachi to call people to repentance, to prepare them spiritually, to be able to receive the next messenger, who we understand to be the Lord, the, the, the messenger of the covenant. And that's what happened in the life and ministry of John the Baptist. He introduced Jesus as the Messiah. You remember from the book of John, he says, behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. So if Jesus is interpreting John the Baptist as being that first messenger, the clear implication is that Jesus understands himself to be the one for whom Jesus is preparing the way, that Jesus is the messenger of that covenant. So just to recap, Malachi prophesies about two messengers, two people bringing the word of the Lord, and they turn out to be John the Baptist and Jesus. So what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus would be the messenger of the covenant? Well, the role of any messenger or any prophet in Old Testament Israel was to be a, a covenant enforcer. They would come and remind the people of their vows. They would call them back to their obedience and those covenant promises. But this messenger here, as he is described, is distinct. He's different because he wouldn't just be a prophet. He also would be a lord. He would be a king who would enforce that justice. And not just only a king, but this messenger would be a priest Notice, too, that he comes to his temple, is what it says. So we have here in this messenger of the covenant, a prophet, a priest, a king. And it's always really hard to dissect these. These prophecies can be very unclear about what was meant to apply to the original audience, what was meant to apply to Christ, what is yet to be fulfilled. It's hard to understand these things. But we know now, as God's revelation was progressing through Jesus, we, we grow to learn more. We learn more about what these words truly meant in their fullest meaning. Jesus helped us by clarifying that this verse is really about John the Baptist and himself. And so if this is about Jesus in the fullest sense, which covenant is he bringing? Well, it must be the new covenant, the new covenant that the other prophets had also mentioned. These chapters are super important to, to remember if you're trying to think about important spots in the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 31, and Ezekiel 36. These passages that mention a new and better covenant that God is going to establish with his people. There's going to be a new and a better covenant because it would provide those provisions for God's people to actually have the desire from within their hearts to keep God's commands. Their hearts would be renewed, they would be born again. They would have complete forgiveness of sin. They would all know God. There would be a new king who is like David, only better. And God's people would be reunified again. Well, how would that happen? How would this new covenant happen? Well, it would be through the work of this new, this new messenger of the covenant. This new messenger who would establish the new covenant in his blood. He is the one who would provide a final and full and complete sacrifice for sin. And then act as a priest interceding on behalf of his people before God. And then he would send his spirit to dwell within them in order to write God's law on their hearts so that their obedience comes from within and they turn back to God. I hope that you've noticed 
from the beginning of this book up until now, that it all seems to be circling around and rotating around this concept of covenant faithfulness. Right off the bat, God is faithful to the covenant promises that he made with his people, but his people are not. God would bring discipline for their disobedience, and there's a period of time where it would work uh, temporarily, but they just keep following back into that sinful rebellion. It's a cycle that's carried on throughout the Old Testament, particularly the book of Judges, but really all through the prophets. There is seemingly no way that humanity is ever going to pull off what God requires of us. We'll never live up to those promises. It will never live up to those obligations to God or to one another, which is why we needed a new and better covenant, one that God himself would enter into history to establish himself, to to uphold on behalf of his people. And friends, this is only something that could be possible if the person who is upholding that covenant as a messenger is someone who is truly God, so he could be perfectly faithful to the covenant, and truly man, so he could really represent us. And that's who we have in Jesus Christ, who is the God-man. If this messenger was coming to his temple, this messenger must have been God. More than a man, but also God. It is God's temple, but Malachi says that it is this messenger of the covenant's temple. So God is sending a messenger who is himself God. This gets complicated, but we understand this in the light of the New Testament. This is a glimpse at the doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father sent God the Son into the world, and he, as God the Son, came to his temple because he is God. And of course, we only understand this because we live on this side of the cross and through the work of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant. But Malachi's audience wouldn't have understood all this. They wouldn't have gotten this. And so that's why the prophet has to warn them. You can accuse God of being indifferent about injustice. You can ask, you can be delighted for him to show up in judgment, but you really need to be careful what you're asking for. I don't think you fully understand what you're asking. Third, God's justice begins with his household. Chapter 3, verses 2 to 5. Let's read that back into our hearing. And we'll start with A, point A, and just verses 2 through 4, where God's people are purified through discipline. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as and in former years. So when this Lord comes, this messenger of the covenant, brings the justice which is desired and longed for, The question is sent out here twice in two different ways. Who will be able to endure that judgment? Who will be able to stand when he starts to point out the injustice? It's a rhetorical question with an implied negative response. No one will stand if God starts calling out injustice. No one would be able to stand. So if we start calling out injustice everywhere, every human is implicated in that prosecution. 
And so part of what we learn in the New Testament is that this messenger, this Messiah, would come in two stages. This is really important to know, that this Messiah would come in two stages. It must have seemed like those in the Old Testament that he would just come in one stage. Uh, When this messenger of the covenant comes, he's going to bring justice. He's going to act as a prophet, a priest, an actual king sitting on an actual throne physically. But we know now that Jesus came in two stages. His first coming was to complete his work of that new covenant, to pay for the sins of the world, to resurrect, to ascend, and to sit at the right hand of God the Father, to act as that priest in God's holy temple. The second coming will be when he brings judgment through this fire. And we, friends, live in between those two days, between Christ's ascension and Christ's return. Notice what this day of the second coming of Jesus Christ brings. It'll be purification of his people through the hot fire of his judgment and discipline. Again, this is not a fire designed to destroy. We sing about this sometimes in How Firm a Foundation. My only design is your dross to consume and your gold to refine. The purpose is not to destroy, but to purify and to refine his people. We remember the sons of Levi from earlier in the book. Those are those covenant priests, and we remember that they're not offering pure sacrifices to the Lord. God is not accepting their worship, but when God comes in judgment through his messenger, he'll restore them so that they get back to doing what they were called to do originally. God's people will get back to making offerings in righteousness like they did briefly when the priesthood originally began. During Jesus' first coming, of course, we actually caught glimpses, small shadows of what this purification would look like. We recall from his ministry in the, the Gospels that he would come during his final week of his ministry on earth into his temple. In Matthew 21, it's recorded in all of the Gospels, but Matthew 21 in particular, he enters his temple and he sees the corruption that's inside his temple and he brings justice, he brings discipline, he brings correction. You remember what he does, he sees the money changers. He pulls out a whip. And he says, my, my father's house is not meant to be a den of thieves. It is meant to be a house of prayer. Starts flipping over tables. So you get to see a small glimpse of that greater purification, that cleansing that would be coming for God's people. And friends, we understand, of course, that we are purified in this life through various trials of different kinds, as Peter mentioned. We're being purged of our sinful dross in meaningful ways in our lives. And we call that process sanctification, growing in holiness, as that dross is consumed by the refining discipline of our Lord. But there is a greater day coming when we will be completely purified. And we call that moment glorification, when we are finally fully free from sin. And so it's important for us to examine our hearts and minds this morning together. Are you being purged of sin through suffering? Are you being conformed into the image of his son? It may be difficult, but God's ultimate goal, friends, is not to give you what you want. It is to give you what you need. More than health, more than wealth, whatever definition of happiness that you come up with in terms of comfort, what you need more than that, what we all need more than that, in light of the coming judgment, is righteousness. And if God counted everything that we've done wrong, 
None of us would stand in that judgment. We don't need a righteousness that comes from our own ability to try harder. We need a righteousness that comes to us from outside of us, a righteousness that is impossible for us to fulfill. And that's why the gospel is such good news. Even here in the Old Testament prophet of Malachi, believe this word. Before the justice that you desire comes, you will want to be justified in the sight of the judge. So when we get this accurate picture of the lay of the land, of our being complicit in sin and unrighteousness and injustice, we don't grumble at God's patience in justice. We celebrate it. Thank God he's patient. The Lord would have been justified to come in judgment one time on us all. But he came to bear that judgment himself on the cross so that when he returns, we might be able to hide ourselves in him and stand in that judgment, that final judgment by faith alone because of the price he paid with his precious blood of that new covenant. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. For those who do not fear him, who do not honor him, that judgment will bring condemnation. B, verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Each of these actions, as they're described here, are clear evidence that people don't fear God. That's sort of a summary statement there. The fact that they don't fear God is evidenced by their injustice towards one another. Sorcery is the pursuit of control, the pursuit of power, through manipulation, seeking to appease these false gods in order to get what you want from them. All the while, of course, not recognizing or willfully being ignorant of the dark spiritual forces that would stand behind them. Adultery, lying, both examples of not remaining faithful to your vow, to your word, to your covenant. And by oppressing the most vulnerable in society, those hired workers, the widows, the fatherless, the sojourner, refugees, they showed that they had no genuine compassion for those who are made in God's image. It's a broad list of crimes. It's like, you wanted justice. Here's the docket. Breaking moral codes, the breakdown of the social implications of justice, they are characterized by these things because they don't fear the Lord. So those who were thinking that they're really good, thinking, man, I sure hope God comes and judges all these bad guys. They were actually guilty of the injustice that they hated. Isn't that just like, maybe it's just me. (laughs) I do the same thing. We tend to look outward and call out the sins that we hate most of others, and then we sort of paper over our own. 
none of us has a record of righteousness that would stand before the judgment of God. So if you're not a Christian, here is the invitation to flee to Christ, which is the only hope of consolation of the Christian. We flee to the redemption of Jesus' first coming in order that we might stand during the wrath of his second coming. And in between those times, we seek to be purified by his discipline. We seek to be refined. We seek to be characterized by a genuine fear of the Lord, which is evidenced in our worship of him alone, being rid of the weight of sin, helping those who are in need, caring about justice, keeping our word, worshiping God alone. But friends, if we never come to him freely now, we will experience condemnation, as it's described here in verse 5 and elsewhere in the book of Revelation. The condemnation of Jesus there is described as a double-edged sword which is coming forth from his mouth. It is the word of the covenant, God's covenant, coming in prosecution for faithlessness. It is a just condemnation. We all know that's true. But when we run to Jesus, now, freely, with open arms, we find in him a high priest who loves to welcome us, who takes joy in showing us mercy, who sympathizes with our weakness, who deals gently with us as our high priest. Friends, no matter how just you think you are, no matter the broad extent of your track record of sin, it is only ever by God's grace alone that any of us will stand before the judgment throne of God above. Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.